not too long ago, I was driving uh, to one of my appointments, and I was flipping through the radio, and uh, it came across a, a Christian talk show. Uh, and on, on this particular show, there was a man on there who claimed to be an atheist, and he was expounding upon his views and philosophies of life. And uh, they had a, a, a segment where they had callers uh, that they were going to entertain questions from the callers. And so as, uh, as the callers would call in, I was amazed, uh, maybe appalled would be a better word, at how easily this man just ripped up, chewed up, and spit out every person that called to challenge him and his views concerning whether or not God existed. I mean, it was unbelievable to me how easy he was, I mean, how easy he made it seem as he was really asking the question that we've been asking ourselves for the last week and we'll conclude this morning, and that is the question of, does God really exist? I mean, it, it, was, it was unbelievable how easy it was for him to discredit the questions and the callers that phoned in. And I thought, man, how tragic that is, that it would be that easy. And, then, and, and here's why. Someone tell me what the first statement that came out of there. was probably a dozen callers in the course of while I was listening. What was the first statement that came out of the, quote, Christian's mouth who called in to challenge this man and his views concerning the fact that he did not believe that God existed? What was the first statement, inevitably, that they said? Yeah, that's, that's a good one. My pastor says... They didn't say that one, but that usually comes up. I mean, how many of you have heard that in conversation? Well, I was told... Or this one. What did you say? The Bible says... That one, that was inevitably the, the, the first line out of almost every person that called in. You know what? They, they, they went after this man by saying... Well, sir, the Bible says, which he would respond, well, tell me why you believe in the Bible. To which point they would say something very intelligent like, duh. <laughs> and oh. And somebody even less intelligent, something even less intelligent than that, they would say things like, well, I just know it in my heart. To which you'd say, well, friend, I don't know that in my heart. I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe what you say. And that's very valid. I mean, you stop and think about it. You know, we, we argue in circles quite often with people trying to help them to understand why we believe in the existence of God. We use arguments that we cannot support nor substantiate. And so our credibility then diminishes to the point where, why would I continue to listen to you? So what we've been going over, and hopefully you've seen that uh, so far we've looked at three facts that we need to consider as to the existence of God. The first one was the material universe. Whether you believe in God or don't believe in God, you have to explain how everything that you see around you came into existence. The second thing is, if you believe that it just happened, how do you explain the order and the design of the universe as to how specific things are? The third thing that we looked at was the nature of man. So... Regardless of whether you believe in God or not believe in God, every human being, whatever their belief system is, they've got to be able to identify how everything came into being that we see, if it's random, random or haphazard, why does it have such design to it, and not only that, but how do you explain the existence of man? If you do not believe in divine creation or that God made man, then what, how do you believe that we got here? Well, the other alternative and option we examined thoroughly last week was the process of evolution. 
which leaves many, many questions that are unanswered. So therefore, we come to the conclusion that I can, I can with confidence say, I believe in the existence of God because these three facts support my belief. But there's also one other thing, and there's nothing wrong with saying I believe in the existence of God because of the reliability and the accuracy of the Bible. Amen. There's nothing wrong with that at all. However, what we've got to be careful to be able to explain to that person is why we believe in the reliability and the accuracy of the Bible. And this is where we often get in trouble. You probably have noticed up to this point, I have not used the Bible to demonstrate why I believe the material universe was created by God. I haven't used the Bible to support why I believe the order and the design of the universe uh, is a product of the creation of God. I haven't used the Bible to support the nature of man or how man came about is supported by what the Bible has to say. Are all three of these supported by what the Bible says? Absolutely. But it is getting, you know, you're putting the cart before the horse if you're trying to deal with someone who does not believe any of these things to try to take him to step number four and say, I believe in the existence of God because the Bible says so. Well, wait a minute. Why do you believe the Bible says so? See, when I was searching in my life for whether God existed or who he was or whatever, I remember being confronted by very well-intended but naive people that would use the same argument with me. Well, Chuck, but the Bible says God created the heavens and the earth. Well... But you know what? So what? Of course it says it because the Bible is, you know, it's biased. It's leaning in the direction of God. So it's going to say that God did that. But the problem that I wrestled with was, tell me why I should believe that the Bible is reliable and that the Bible is accurate. We're going to take one session and just deal with that specific topic. But for right now, just to be able to understand, there's two thoughts that you need to to consider. When somebody challenges you and says, why do you believe in the reliability of the Bible? Why do you believe that the Bible is accurate? Why do you believe that you can put your trust in the Bible? There's two answers that you can throw back to them once you understand what they are. The first one is what? The Word of God. And they would say, what? What? You know, see what I'm saying? And that's fine. I I want you to think about this for a second because our first response would be, well, but that's the Word of God. Well, how do you know it's the Word of God? Well, because God spoke it and somebody wrote it down. Well, how do you know they wrote it down? How do you know they're not confused? Or better yet, you know what? Well, the Book of Mormon is the Word of God too because the angel, you know, Moroni spoke to Joseph Smith and he wrote it down, so that's the Word of God too. But that Word of God is different from this Word of God. What Word of God is the right Word of God? What? Evidence, good. What kind of evidence? And that's really what we're looking for. Objective evidence. Historical evidence. What kind of historical evidence? Okay, number yeah, number two, and we'll go back to number one. The the second thing is you'll be able to say, you know what? Archaeological evidence indicates that the Bible is reliable and is accurate. Archaeological evidence indicates that the Bible is reliable and is accurate. What else makes the Bible reliable and accurate is the first thing, and perhaps the most incredible thing of all, and that is the fulfillment of predictive prophecy. Predictive prophecy gives credibility to our argument that the Bible is reliable and is accurate. Do you follow this? The Bible speaks of events that would occur in the future sometimes hundreds and even thousands of years before they were to occur, and they occur in precise, detailed accuracy, and there is no mistaking it for what it is. Predictive prophecy. You know, see, what's interesting is, I was having lunch with a guy, and I said, you know what, I believe in the reliability of the Bible. 
And he said, oh, you know what? The Bible is filled with contradictions. How many of you have ever heard that? The Bible is filled with contradictions. Now, how many of you have ever asked this question? Name one of them. We had this conversation. The Bible's filled with contradictions. Hey, that's wonderful because I believe it's reliable. And if you can prove to me it's not, then I need to know, which contradiction are you referring to? Well, you know, there's a lot of them. Oh, fine. Then it shouldn't be hard to name one, should it? Especially since you have so many to choose from. Which one are you referring to? You know, and that's what, I mean, that's what happens. There's no answer. If I didn't believe in the existence of God, how do I explain how the Bible came about? How do I explain that 40 different authors wrote the Bible? How do I explain all the different books of the Bible? How do I explain the fact that it was written over a period of 1,400 years, and yet there is incredible continuity between every one of the authors who never knew one another in many cases... How do I explain how someone could write something 800 years before someone else who would write something and they would be able to confirm what was written with tremendous accuracy, with, with no error? How do I explain the existence of the Bible apart from the existence of God? Because the Bible speaks of the existence of God. The Bible clearly speaks of the plan of God for salvation. The Bible clearly speaks of all the issues that we're dealing with. The creation of the universe. Um, you know, the, the order of the universe. The nature of man. The Bible clearly teaches all these things. And yet it took place over a 1400 year period. Written by 40 different people. How do you explain the accuracy of the Bible. If it were not delivered to us from the, from the mouth of God. To those who wrote it. How do you explain that? But there are still those who would doubt it and say, well, I still don't believe it. Okay, well, what we need to do is let's take a look at predictive prophecy. Explain to me when you think about the fact that the Bible speaks of scores of cities, cities such as uh, Tyre and Sidon and Samaria and Jerusalem, the cities of Eden and Babylon. And let me take Babylon just as one example of the predictive prophecy of God. The city of Babylon was perhaps the most magnificent city the world has ever known. In its heyday, there was no other city on the face of the earth that was like it. They, through their intelligence, developed mathematical systems. We speak of the hanging gardens of Babylon. We speak of the fertile valleys and all that was produced in that particular area. As you look at all those things, the, the, the walls and the architecture and everything that they accomplished, the Bible in Isaiah 31, 13, 19 says this, Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. The word of God through the prophet Isaiah said, Take a look at Babylon and all its majesty and all of its glory and everything that you see before you. It will become one day as the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and it will not exist. Now, we look back in hindsight and we realize, well, what's the big deal? It doesn't exist. Oh, yeah, but when you were making that type of statement at the time when this city is in tremendous glory, there isn't anybody that would have believed that one day Babylon would not exist. But God, in His infinite wisdom, since He knows the beginning and the end, said one day it will be destroyed and it will never come about. The walls of Babylon were incredible. The historian Herodotus tells us the walls had towers that extended 200 feet that were 300 feet above the walls that were 200 feet high. There were 196 square miles of walls, 87 feet thick at its base. But God said the broad walls of Babylon will be utterly broken. It shall be desolate forever. 
Jeremiah 51, 58, and 62. Now let me ask you something. God says, the, the walls of Babylon will be destroyed and it will be destroyed forever. The city of Babylon would be destroyed and it will never be rebuilt. Now is that vague? Is that va- Does anybody think that's vague? Is that kind of precise? It's going to be destroyed and ain't being built again. That's pretty precise. Now, as you look at all this, there's no way the prophet could have written that before it happened, because, I mean, after it happened, because he wrote it 800 years or so before it happened. See, as you go through this, you begin to realize there's something incredible about the prophecy of God. Now, listen to this. Julian the Apostate came to the throne of Rome, and his one overwhelming desire was to discredit Christianity. And so what he was going to do, and with, as well as all of that, he was engaged in a war with the Persian near the remains of Babylon. He completely destroyed the remnants of the wall of Babylon so it wouldn't afford his enemies any protection. Here was a man who said he did not believe in God and wanted to destroy Christianity, did not believe in the prophecies of God, and God used him. What a twist of irony, and God's kind of got an interesting sense of humor. But he took this man and he said, okay, you know what? Watch this. And he destroyed, utterly destroyed, the walls of Babylon so that he wouldn't be destroyed by his enemies. And God had the last laugh and said, you know what, you don't believe what I have to say, and I'm even going to use you to demonstrate that I'm going to get it done. I mean, that's hilarious to me. I think it's funny. But it says that because of the wrath of the Lord, it shall not be inhabited. It will be wholly desolate. It shall no more be inhabited forever. Jeremiah 50, verse 13. Now, if you remember when the Gulf War was going on, Babylon was in, in, in and near the ancient uh, uh, country of Iraq. So Babylon, if you saw any of the shots from CNN that were showing where Babylon, quote, used to be, there is not an evident, there is not a drop, there is not a piece of the wall, there is nothing left that was standing of this great city of Babylon. It is desolate beyond desolation. The only thing that lives there are snakes and vipers and everything else, but that's all that's there. Because God said, I'm going to destroy it and it ain't coming back. And that's the way it is. What's interesting though, and, and, and this is kind of funny and I think you'll like this too, but as, as you go through it, there was uh, Claudius uh, James Rich in his narrative of the journey to the site of Babylon, 1811, he writes this. For the space of two months throughout the year, the ruins of Babylon are inundated by the annual overflowing of the Euphrates so that to render many parts of them inaccessible by converting the valleys into swamps. You know, it's interesting. The Bible says, The sea has come up upon Babylon. She is covered with the multitude of the waves. Jeremiah 51, 42. And at the same time, the Bible says that it's desolation and it's dry land and wilderness. There's one of those contradictions. How can God say that one time Babylon is going to be under siege with water and the other times he says it's dry and barren, it's a wilderness? Well, easy, because two months out of the year, the river Euphrates floods the place and the rest of the year it's dry and it's barren. And God didn't contradict himself. He just told the truth. And so as you go through this, it's interesting as you go through all these things and scenarios. This is just one example. But Alexander the Great decided he would rebuild Babylon. He knew of the prophet's words that the city of Babylon would never be rebuilt. So guess what Alexander the Great thought to do? I'll prove that the scripture is wrong. I'll prove that the prophets are wrong. I'll prove that God doesn't exist. And I will, I will rebuild the city of Babylon. So he, he set apart... And, and as he, he set apart 600,000 rations to, sold to his soldiers to rebuild the city of Babylon. Now the question is, how would God respond to the challenge of Alexander the Great? After all, he is the Great. How would he respond to this? Well, God had a simple way to respond to it. 
History records the fact that immediately after making the declaration to rebuild Babylon, Alexander the Great was struck dead. I think that's hilarious. I really do. I mean, sorry for Alex, but you know, it's funny to me. It's like, yeah, well, I'll show you that God's not real. I'll show you he doesn't know what he's doing. I'm going to declare 600,000 rations. We're going to rebuild this city. Uh, hey, uh, Alex. Alex. <laughs> no, you're not. You know why you're not? Because I said you're not. You know why you aren't going to do it? Because I said the city of Babylon would be destroyed utterly and it shall never, ever be rebuilt. And the interesting thing to me is, historically, the walls around Babylon make the Great China Wall look like a little picket fence based on historical description. Great China Wall stands and we all go ooh and ahs and that majestic. But then to realize, you know what, the, the walls of Babylon made him look like a picket fence. And God at the time through his prophet said this, you know what, you think that wall's big? I'm going to utterly destroy it. There ain't going to be anything left standing. You think the city's majestic? It's going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not going to come. To, everything's destroyed. It ain't coming back. See, predictive prophecy is one reason that I believe. And you know what? There are 2,000 prophecies in the Old Testament alone that have been fulfilled with the same type of accuracy. Isn't that fascinating? Somebody says, well, why do you believe in the Bible? I'll tell you why I believe in the Bible. Have you ever read it? Have you ever studied it? Do you know what it says? Do you know what God has done? Man, if you read it and studied it and know what he's done, you'd believe it too. The second thing is what we talked about, the science of archaeology. You know what? When man has said that the Bible was wrong, man has been disproven over and over and over. The science of archaeology, there are 25,000 finds that have been found through the science of archaeology that they have uncovered that affirm the testimony of Scripture. That's amazing to me. One of the most notable archaeologists was a man named Sir William Ramsey. He was an atheist. He was the son of atheists. He was wealthy. He had a Ph.D. from Oxford. And he gave his whole life over to archaeology and he was determined to prove the Bible was wrong. He took the book of Acts that one book, and he set out for 25 years to disprove the book of Acts. He was impressed by the accuracy of Luke and in his writings finally declared that Luke was exact down to the last minute detail. In his attempts to disprove the Bible, Sir William Ramsey uncovered hundreds of things which confirmed the historicity of the Bible, particularly the book of Acts. And finally, in one of his books that he wrote it, one of his last books that he wrote, he shocked the whole critical world when he declared that he himself had become a Christian. Noah's flood. Archaeology has, has uncovered tremendous evidence of the existence and the reality of Noah's flood. All throughout the world, there are libraries with hundreds of thousands of volumes that talk about the Noatian flood. Archaeology continues to dig up over and over again the reliability of Scripture, that the Bible is accurate. See, I believe in God because the material universe shouts His existence, the order and the design of it, the nature of man, the reliability and the accuracy of the Bible all indicate to me that God exists. 
And not only that, I believe in the Bible because of the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, stop and think about this for a moment. How do we explain the person of Jesus Christ without believing in the existence of God? He is without doubt the most outstanding and unique person in the history of the world. Ask the doubting person how they would explain to you the existence or the person of Jesus Christ aside from believing in the existence of God. Let me give you an illustration. What makes Jesus so different? What makes Jesus so different? Why is it that his name, more than any other name of any other religious leader, can cause such tremendous irritation? Think about it. Why is it you can talk about God all day long, nobody gets upset, but as soon as you talk about Jesus, it's the end of the conversation? Why don't the names of Buddha or Mohammed or Confucius offend people the way that Jesus does? Let me ask you that question. Why is Jesus so irritating to people? Because he was sinless. The question is, yeah, he was sinless, but then I'm, I'm going to play the skeptic here, okay? How do we know that he was sinless? History tells us he was sinless. Demonstrate to me somehow, somewhere in history, that we know that he's sinless. He had to be to fulfill God's plan. Yeah, see, I don't, I, don't, I don't buy that. I mean, I buy that maybe he had to be to fulfill God's plan, but I don't buy that that was God's plan, and I don't buy... Okay, interesting point. Okay, we go back to the argument again, and that is that the Bible says he's sinless. Okay, well, that's okay. If we can prove the historical reliability and accuracy of the Bible, then we can go back and we can use that as a frame of reference. But if we just came off the wall and said, explain to me the person of Jesus Christ, and said, you know what, he was the only person that ever lived on the face of the earth that was sinless, the, the skeptic would say, well, how do you know that? Yes. There you go. There you go. You see, the problem with Jesus is this. He said, I'm God. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and life, and that no man comes to the Father but through me. He said, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me, for I am the Father and one. He said, I am the God of Israel, meaning in John 8, 58, that he was claiming to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was claiming to be the same God that sent Moses to Pharaoh to lead his people out of Egypt. He said, even before Abraham existed, he said, I am and you know what they did? They picked up stones. They're going to kill him because they knew he claimed to be God. Think about it for a moment. Why did Jesus, why was he put to death? What did he do wrong? He did nothing wrong. In fact, Pontius Pilate, and this is historical writings outside of the Bible, secular history, Pontius Pilate wrote in his journal that he found no fault with the man Jesus of Bethlehem of Judea. There was nothing he found him guilty of. He did nothing wrong but to appease the Jews who wanted to kill him. I offered him up and I, I set free a man named Barabbas. You see that? See, that's historical, uh, secular history that says of the person of Jesus, he was put to death, but he didn't do anything wrong. He was guiltless. Doesn't mean he's sinless, but he was guiltless of the crime they accused him of. But the reason they put him to death was because he claimed to be God. Jesus irritates a whole bunch of people because he claims to be God. Not because he claims to be a prophet or a messenger of truth, but because he claims to be the truth of God embodied in human form. See, the person of Jesus, it's fascinating to me, is that he has claimed to be God. Now, think about this for a second. How do we know that what he claimed is true? We come back to 
predictive prophecy. Do you realize the person of Jesus Christ fulfilled 300 predictive prophecies that were written hundreds of years before his birth? Sometimes thousands of years before his birth. 300. Now I want to try to help you to understand something here. 300 prophecies for one person to fulfill. Okay, what they did was they took eight of the 300 that Jesus fulfilled. And they said, what is the probability, scientifically, mathematically, what is the probability of one person fulfilling just eight of these in their lifetime? Now remember, Jesus only lived 33 years. He fulfilled 300 prophecies in a short lifetime. And they said, okay, let's just take eight of them. Okay, listen to this. Peter W. Stoner writes this concerning the American scientific affiliation. It's a foreword of his book. He says, The manuscript for Science Speaks has been carefully reviewed by a committee of the American scientific affiliation members and by the executive council of the same group and has been found in general to be dependable and accurate in regard to the scientific material that was presented. The mathematical analysis included is based upon principles of probability which are thoroughly sound and Professor Stoner has applied these principles in a proper and a convincing way. All right? What he's saying is the science of mathematical probability will demonstrate the truthfulness of the predictive prophecies concerning the person of Jesus Christ. An objective measurement. Here's what he used as an illustration. He said, for any one person to fulfill eight of these prophecies in a lifetime. One person, just eight. Now remember I said Jesus fulfilled 300. Just eight of them. They said that it was, the probability was one in ten to the 17th power. Which was one and then ten with 17 zeros after it. Now, to help you understand how incredible that is, the illustration that he uses is this. He said, let's take the state of Texas. Let's take a silver dollar. One or ten to the 17th power would fill and cover the state of Texas three to four feet high in silver dollars. All right? Now, he's saying for one person to fulfill these eight prophecies, we would take one silver dollar and we would mark on it with a mark. We would then throw it down, stir up all the silver dollars across the whole state of Texas, we would take an individual, and preferably the skeptic who says he doesn't believe that God exists, and we would blindfold that individual, and then we would tell them they can walk as, as far as they want to the east or the west or the north or the south, go as far as they want, and at any time that they want, they can reach down in the pile that they're standing in and pick out the silver, that particular silver dollar. He said that is the probability of one person fulfilling eight of the prophecies in a lifetime. Now I'm going to ask you a question because they never even answered it because it, it can't be answered. What's the probability of one person fulfilling 300 of them in a lifetime? Is it the surface of the earth? Do you see, do you see folks, listen... There is scientific evidence. There is objective evidence. There is proof that goes beyond, oh, I just hope this is right, or I've been told by someone else, or my pastor told me that God exists, or this or that or whatever it is, or I was raised in a Christian home, or I believe in God, but I don't even know I believe in God. Listen, you need to understand why you believe what you believe. 
There is a reason for it. We're to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us. Now, we may know nothing about all of these things to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You may know nothing about any of these things to find favor with God. And that's a wonderful thing about God, that He doesn't give you a test on the material universe, the order and design of it, the nature of man, the reliability and accuracy of the Bible, and the person of Jesus Christ. And at the end of it, if you get them all right, He says, okay, now you can come to heaven. Thank God, praise God, that's not the test He puts us through. But on the other hand, it would be wonderful to be able to consider the person of Jesus Christ and know what history has told us about Him. Who was Jesus? The Bible claims he was born of a virgin. That was a miracle. Who is he? He grew up in Nazareth. He was the son of a carpenter. Who's Jesus? Twelve years of age, his wisdom and teaching ability was noticed by great theologians of Jerusalem as he sat in the temple and challenged them on the issues of God. Who was Jesus? That, that here he was when he was 30 years of age, that people were following him all over the place, saying they saw him raise people from the dead and heal people that were lame and open the blind, eyes of the blind. And when John the Baptist doubted and said, are you the one that we're looking for? Are you the savior of the world? Jesus said, go back to him and tell him that the eyes of the blind have been opened, that the lame walk and the deaf hear. And they knew that nobody in the history of the world had done what Jesus did. And he never doubted him ever again because he knew the Bible spoke of one person that would come at a point in time in history in the future that would be able to open the eyes of the blind. He would be able to raise those who couldn't walk off the, off the ground. He would be able to raise those who were dead out of their grave. He would be able to do all the things that Jesus demonstrated that he was doing in fulfillment of the prophecies. There was nobody like the person of Jesus Christ. Why is he so offensive to people? Because he claims to be God. Why does that offend people? Because he says, if you do not trust in me and believe in me, then you are going to hell for all of eternity. That's offensive. But if it's true, we better listen to what he's saying. I mean, think about it, folks. I mean, here is a man in history who accomplished more than... I mean, think about what he's accomplished. He didn't own anything. He wasn't an emperor. He didn't, he didn't rule any army. I mean, think about what he's done. There are 25,000 words used to describe Jesus in the 15th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. More than Aristotle, Cicero, Alexander, Julius Caesar, Buddha, Confucius, Mohammed, or even Napoleon Bonaparte. But what did he do? He never ruled an empire. Never marched an army. Never built great cities. And yet our calendar system reflects the person of Jesus Christ. His resurrection is, is recognized throughout the world for the last 2,000 years. Who is this person of Jesus Christ? And what does the world have to say about him? Listen to what Napoleon himself said. He said, I know men and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no man. After an ungodly life, Napoleon came to his end on a, on a barren island and he was reading the scripture every day and he came to these conclusions. He said, superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires. He says, and the gods of other religions. The resemblance simply does not exist. There is between Christianity and whatever other religions the distance of infinity. We can say to the authors of every other religion, you are neither gods nor the agents of the deity. You are but missionaries of falsehood molded from the same clay with the rest of mortals. You are made with all passions and vices inseparable from them. Your temples and your priests proclaim your origin. Such will be the judgment, the cry of conscience of whoever examines the gods and the temples of paganism. But Jesus Christ astounds me and fills me with awe. William Shakespeare, perhaps the greatest literary genius of all time, wrote this in his will. 
I commend my soul into the hands of God, my Creator, hoping and assuredly believing through the merits of Jesus Christ, my Savior, to be made partaker of life everlasting. Lord Byron said, If ever man, if ever man was God or God-man, Jesus Christ was both. James Greenleaf Whittier said, My ground of hope for myself and for humanity is in that divine fullness of love which was manifested in the life, teaching, and sacrifice of Christ. In the infinite mercy of God so revealed and not in any way worth or merit of our nature, I humbly yet very hopefully trust. Charles Dickens said this, I commit my soul to the mercy of God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I now most solemnly impress upon you the truth and the beauty of the Christian religion as it came from Christ himself and the impossibility of going far wrong if you humbly but heartily respect it. The book's filled with thousands of testimonies of some of the most intelligent people that have ever lived on the face of the planet. And there are people that would charge that those who believe in the Bible and the historic Christian faith have somehow or another checked their brains out at the door. They accuse you of not being intelligent, of not being rational, of not understanding what you believe. And yet again, many of us don't. And so I challenge you to consider why you believe in the existence of God so you can in a way articulate why you believe what you believe. That you understand the material universe, where it came from, the order and design of it, the nature of man, the reliability, the accuracy of the Bible, and the person of Jesus Christ. Stop and think about it. But you see... It all boils down to these are objective. But let me give you one final argument for my belief in the existence of God. And that's simply this, personal experience. It's not objective. It's very subjective. And I realize that. And I certainly wouldn't use that as my only basis for discussing my belief in God with another person. Because we all have different experiences and we all go through things in life. And depending on, you know, if you ate sushi the night before or pepperoni pizza, you could experience a whole bunch of different kind of things. But personal experience, there's no way you can get around this. When I say that I can give you this testimony, if nothing else, if you don't believe anything else, let me tell you this. Jesus Christ changed my life. And if you have a few moments, let me share with you what he did. Because I know this, on February 16th, 1978, I didn't know a thing about anything that we're talking about. I couldn't tell you about the reliability of the Bible. couldn't tell you about predictive prophecy. couldn't tell you about archaeology. couldn't tell you about the nature of man. couldn't tell you about the design and the order of the universe. I couldn't tell you anything, but I could tell you this. When God reached down in His love for me, and He said, Chuck, you've got something missing in your life, and only I can fill it. You need to put your faith and your trust and your hope in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. When God reached down to me and offered that invitation, and I accepted that free gift, My life has never been the same since that day. You see, the greatest argument that we have for the existence of God that goes beyond just intelligent, intellectual argument is the person who has bowed their knee to the the lordship of Jesus Christ, has humbled themselves, and have invited Christ into their life to change them, to make them in what God wants them. The testimony of people like that speaks loudly and it speaks volumes about the true existence of God. When you walk the walk and talk the talk and you're heading in the same direction, the world looks at you and says, what's different about your life? Jesus Christ changes lives today. Jesus Christ is alive today. 
Jesus Christ is alive because he rose from the dead, which is a historical fact and reality, but he is alive today. He's sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and he'll come again to judge the living and the dead, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. But the difference is there will be a day when those who will bow their knee and it will be too late and it will be the last thing that they do before they're separated from God for all of eternity. The Bible says that those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised them from the dead, that they would be saved. The Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which man must be saved but Jesus. You see, ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you I believe in the existence of God because Jesus Christ claimed to be God. Jesus Christ claims to change lives. Jesus Christ says he can forgive sin. And because Jesus Christ changed my life. And let me ask you a question. Has he changed yours? You see, that's the greatest argument that any person has that goes beyond the intellectual. Because it's with the heart that man believes, resulting in righteousness. It's not with the head. It's not head knowledge. There's a whole world of people filled with head knowledge. And the most skeptical of all skeptics are those like Sir William Ramsey, who set out intellectually to disprove God. But it wasn't until he bowed his heart to God that Jesus Christ changed his life. You see, and I'll give you an illustration. A week ago, just to show you how alive and how real Jesus is. A week ago, I got a phone call from a guy who's in, in our Bible study. And he said, I've been waiting all night to call you. I couldn't wait to call you. I said, what's going on? He said, I got a phone call last night, 1.30 in the morning. And the guy on the other end of the phone said, what do I need to do to be right with God? I can't keep living like this. I got to know. So the Bible's real clear. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's real simple. All you need to do is believe in Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. He goes, I need, I need to talk to you. The guy got up, drove to his house. 2.30 in the morning, this man knelt down beside, his, beside the chair that they were sitting and talking and said, Lord, I don't know a whole bunch about a whole bunch of stuff, but I do know this, that I need to know you and I trust Jesus Christ to forgive my sins and I want to invite him into my life. See, Jesus is still changing lives. That was Tuesday. Thursday, he and his girlfriend were the first people of Bible study. Sunday morning, he was the first guy in chapel with a Bible under his arm. Last Sunday afternoon in Kansas City, he was the first guy that grabbed a handful of other guys and knelt down in the shire and prayed before the game. He was the first guy that came to Bible study again Thursday night. He's the first guy that came to Bible study again Sunday, this morning. And let me tell you something, and you know why? Not because of what anybody else around him said, but because God reached out of heaven and he challenged him to consider the claims of Christ. And when he bowed his knee, Jesus Christ came into his life. And he changed him. And if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. All things pass away, and all things become new. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God for salvation. Do you understand that? See, I'm not ashamed to say I believe in God because I know what Jesus Christ has done in my life. Folks, we need to understand why we believe what we believe. But perhaps the greatest story isn't all of these conversions, which are all good. But let me just close with this story that I just read this week. There's a story about the ending days of the life of Charles Darwin. I think it's fascinating in light of everything we discussed on the nature of man and the origin of the universe. But this gal writes this story of an account toward the end of Charles Darwin's life. Her name was Lady Hope of Northfield, England. And she writes this, It may surprise many students of evolution to learn that in the closing days of his life, the Charles Darwin returned to his faith in the Bible. 
The following account is told by Lady Hope of Northfield, England, a wonderful Christian woman who was often at his bedside before he died. <clears throat> she writes, It was one of those glorious autumn afternoons that we sometimes enjoy in England when I was asked to go in and sit with Charles Darwin. I used to feel when I saw him that his fine presence would make a grand picture for our Royal Academy, but never did I think so more strongly than on this particular occasion. Says he was sitting up in bed, propped by his pillows, gazing out by a far-stretching scene of woods and cornfields which glowed in the light of a marvelous sunset. His features lit up with pleasure as I entered the room, and he waved his hand toward the window as he pointed out at the beautiful sunset scene beyond. In his other hand, he had held open a Bible, and he was always studying it. I asked him, what are you reading now? And he said, the book of Hebrews, the royal book, I call it. Then he placed his finger on certain passages and began commenting on them. I made some allusion to the strong opinions expressed by many on the history of the creation and then their treatment of the earlier chapters of the book of Genesis. And he seemed to be very distressed and his fingers twitched nervously and a look of agony came over his face and he said this, I was a young man with many unformed ideas. I threw out questions and suggestions, wondering all the time about everything and to my astonishment the ideas took like wildfire. People made them into a religion. Then he paused and after a few more sentences on the holiness of God and on the grandeur of this book, looking tenderly at the Bible which he was holding all the time, he said, I have a summer house in the garden which holds about 30 people and it's over there and he pointed through the open window. He says, I want you very much to speak here. I know you read the Bible in the villages and tomorrow afternoon I should like that the servants on the place, some tenants and a few neighbors would gather together and I was wondering, would you please speak to them? I said to him, well, what would you like me to speak about? And he said, Christ Jesus and his salvation. Is not that the best theme? Then I want you to sing some hymns with them. You lead them on your small instruments, do you not? The look of brightness on his face as he said this I shall never forget, for he added these words. If you make the meeting at 3 o'clock, this window will be open, and you will know that I am joining in with you as you sing. Was there ever a more dramatic scene? A young man who said, I had many unformed ideas. I asked questions. I threw them out. And people made a religion out of them. How foolish that is. As he considered the truth of the Bible, the reliability of it, the person of Jesus Christ and his salvation. You see, folks, we need to ask ourselves the question and you need to analyze and investigate the evidence that's before you. But the Bible, which is reliable and accurate, has this to say in Psalm 53.1. It is the fool who says in his heart that there is no God. They are corrupt and their ways are vile. There is no one who does good. There is none righteous, no, not one. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you know God? There's only one way you can know him. And that is you have to know a son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're just grateful that you give us minds that we can think. That we're to love you with all of our hearts, our minds, our souls, and strength. God, we thank you for the evidence that you give us as to your existence. And Father, I just pray for those who may be here this morning that have never knelt before you. To receive the free gift of Jesus Christ. That they would do so today. That they would just pray a simple prayer saying, God, forgive me. The evidence has been there, but I refuse to believe. 
God, forgive my sins and my sin of doubt and my sin of disbelief. And I just ask now that you not only forgive me, but that Jesus Christ would come into my life. God, I look at the evidence and I know that he's God. I know that he died for my sins and that he rose from the dead, proving that he is who he claimed to be. And at this time, in this place, this morning, I just ask him to change my life, to make me into whatever it is that you'll have for me to be in the future. And I just thank you for that. Father, I'm grateful for the moment and the opportunity and time that you gave me to respond to the same challenge. And I'm grateful for what you've done because my life has never been the same. God, we just pray that we will understand that we need to sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ in our heart and be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us. God, help us to understand there's a world who needs to hear about you and your love for them. May we become students of yours so that we can share with others. We just pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Oh.